Welcome to the 2011 Timothy Linneman Memorial Lecture on the Environment. Timothy Linneman was a biology major at CC and would have graduated with the class of 91. That would have been 20 years ago. He died in a tragic car accident the summer before his senior year and never made graduation. Tim was an environmental activist, member of the CC and ACT group, member of Greenpeace. Because of his love for CC and his love for the environment, his family and friends created the beautiful memorial garden just north of Shove Chapel. They also created a fund for this lecture to be given each year on about Earth Day. Last year, the family doubled the fund so that now we can also offer a block course with a similar theme and offer the lecture each year. So it's my honor to introduce this year's speaker, Dr. Dan Chiris, who is also our first Linneman block visitor. Dan taught a course on Southwest Renewable Energy Block 7 and stayed to give the lecture tonight. I met Dan many years ago. We were wondering how many ago that was and neither of us can remember. It was at a Colorado Renewable Energy Conference that I took my first year students to. Shortly after we met, Dan came to CC and he and I team taught a course in environmental science, an introductory course using his um, textbook. Since then, Dan has taught many courses at CC and he's made many contributions to the campus community. When not teaching at CC, Dan teaches workshops on solar electricity, wind energy, passive solar design, energy efficiency, green building, natural building, and electric car conversion. Dan is founder and director of the Evergreen Institute and president of the consulting firm Sustainable Systems Design Incorporated. Dan has published 26 books and nearly 300 articles on green building, residential renewable energy, energy efficiency, and sustainability. He lives in a state-of-the-art, green-built, passive solar, solar electric home made of natural materials and constructed in 1995 in Evergreen, Colorado. Please help me welcome Dan Chiris to give the lecture tonight. Thank you, Sally. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here, and I want to thank everyone who made this possible, uh, especially Sally, who's been an ally of mine for many, many years here. <laughs> it's really sad when you can't remember how many. Um, so it's, it, thank you so much, Sally. Thank you to Sharon Neely uh, for making, as always, making my life much easier when I come for my short block to teach, uh, to teach a course or two here at the college. And thanks also to Nancy Fox and everybody else who not only made this a pleasant stay, but also a very, very uh, profitable stay for me. I learned a lot this year. Thanks also to those students who uh, attended my first cl my class here on uh, renewable energy in the Southwest. You guys were a great group, and I, I, I see some of you out there. It's a, it was a pleasure actually teaching you. Um, so today's talk is the monkey trap. Uh, can the human race survive the human race? It's kind of an open question. When I tell people about the subject of my talk, they all say, oh, no, no, no way, no way. Um, I'm not going to give it away, but what I want to do today is talk to you just a little bit about the monkey trap. What exactly is it, and how does it relate to our current dilemma? I also want to spend a little time uh, talking about what I call the perfect storm, all of these environmental, social, and economic problems that are converging on modern society and the potential impact they could have on us. 
And in light of that evidence, we have to ask the question, why, don't we refuse to, why do we refuse to let go of old-fashioned thinking, old ways that don't seem to be working for us? And, um, but I do want to do talk a little bit about something, I think, something very exciting that's occurring today. I think we're at the beginning of a sustainable revolution. I want to talk a little bit about that and talk about some of the positive signs on the road to sustainability, and there are many. So, um, so that's, that's our road, that's our path today, that's where we're going to be going. Um, what is the monkey trap? I've been asked that many times since I, since I signed up to do this lecture. Well, I learned about it years ago. In, in, in the south of, of uh, India, the local villagers used to capture monkeys by taking a coconut, drilling a hole in it, draining out the juice, and then filling the coconut with rice. And then what they do is they chain the coconut to a tree, and the hole is big enough for a monkey to stick its hand in. And so what would happen is they'd, stick it, they'd attach it to a tree, and the monkey would come and reach their hand in through the hole, grab the rice, and then find out that the hole was cleverly designed so it wasn't quite big enough for them to extract their hand. And what would happen then is they, they'd sit there with their hand on the rice, the hand on the prize, unable to let go, the villagers would throw, a, throw a, a, a net over it, capture it, and then, of course, that, Michael, that monkey uh, met its death soon after that. And to me, you know, the, the surprise was uh, pretty remarkable. <laughs> and, um, and to me, it's a fitting metaphor for human society, is we're locked in a, we're, we're, we're facing so many critical social and economic problems and environmental problems all wrapped up in one, and we refuse to let go of old-fashioned thinking, thinking that really created the problems. We're trying currently oftentimes to solve the problems with the same logic that created them. So why do we do that? Why do we hang on? Why do we resist change? And it's an important subject. I think we could teach an entire class on this here. Uh, the simple answer is just let go. But we don't do that, you know? We don't do that. Um, we hold on to old-fashioned ways. Abe Lincoln said it best, as the times are new, so we must think and act anew. And, and that's my message today, is that we really need to start thinking and acting anew. But what I want to do first is talk about why we hang on to these ways, despite warnings that we're heading over the, the cliff and the consequences are quite substantial. Why is it that we continue to hang on to these outmoded ways of thinking? Why don't we turn around even though we're going to drown, you know? But let's take a look first at the warning signs. Now, the first part of this is going to be a bit gloomy and maybe startling to some of you, but I promise there's some good news coming around. Um, the perfect storm, and I, I'm not going to, uh, to discuss this in great detail, but I want to talk to you about this convergence of social and economic and environmental problems that begin in large part with exponential growth of the human population. And along with that goes everything else, exponential growth in species extinction, and uh, habitat destruction, resource demand, environmental pollution. So the, the, one of the main drivers of today's crisis is this growth in human population. Um, we, we're, we're witnessing all sorts of problems, major shortages of water throughout the world, shortages of food and other vital resources. I also want to talk to you a little bit about the end of cheap oil, since that's one of the, that I think will be a driving force in the future here in America, and also the, driving, the end of cheap natural gas. And another problem called climate change. And what I hope to do today is not only edify, but also shed some light and help uh, break a few myths, bust a few myths about some of these big problems. 
anybody in their right mind who will look at a graph of human population and not see warning signs is purely living with their head buried in the sand. When you go from a stable, small population and within a few hundred years skyrocket to we're over six and a half billion people right now, adding 80 million people a, a year, almost a quarter of a million people, additional people per day, um, that's a major warning sign um, that things are going to get out of balance if they're not already out of balance. And it's not just going to be a bad day at the beach either. This is serious stuff. We see all kinds of problems, squalor, global poverty, two, uh, uh, a third of the world's people living in abject poverty below the poverty line, and then other critical issues like starvation and hunger. Um, it is a serious problem. It's something that we really need to address. And it, it, is, it is one of those issues that, remember, combines with a whole bunch of other things like climate change and acid rain. So it's not in isolation to the other crises and other challenges that we face. I want to talk to you, too, a little bit about climate change. And, and I know many of you, many of the students in here have studied climate change, and you know this. Climate change is real, and it's supported by overwhelming scientific evidence. One, um, you know, one bit of evidence, and I'm not going to go uh, provide you an exhaustive treatise on the, the facts behind climate change, but I want to I show you some of the convincing evidence. Clearly, this is a, a, the graph of global climate, global, average global temperature. Clearly, the planet's temperature is on the rise. And along with it, we're seeing record-breaking heat waves. 2000, 2010 was the hottest decade on, in, in record, on record in human history. And a lot of that, this is an interesting study, they looked at the temperature difference. If you look right here, they looked at the average temperature of this period from 51 to 80 and compared it to the mean surface temperature here and or just vice versa. They compared this temperature to here and you can see in many parts of the planet we're getting one to two degrees Celsius increases in average temperature, and on a global scale, a change of one to two degrees Celsius is major. I mean, it's the difference, a one degree temperature, one or two degree temperature shift in the opposite direction uh, can bring on a global ice age. So, in, and you, you might not think of a one or two degree uh, Celsius a change in temperature as being significant, and it isn't on a given day, but as a global temperature, it's extremely significant. So the Earth is warming, and the climate is changing for a as a result, and not for the better. Um, <clears throat> one of the problems with climate change is, we're, we're, or one, some of the outcomes of uh, global climate, uh, warming climate, is an increase in violent weathers, a dramatic increase in tornadoes. It's actually the, the annual number of tornadoes in the U.S. has doubled since the 1980s. And if you look back at historical records, You'll see in the 1980s, there were 600 to 800 tornadoes per year. And now in the, in the 2000s, you look at the record, it's up to 1,000 to 1,700 per year. So, and some of them can be, some years can be extraordinary. In 2008, there were almost 17, uh, 1,700 tornadoes. It killed 126 people. It injured uh, 1,700 more and cost $1.8 billion in property damage. So I have very little tolerance for people who say we can't afford to attack climate change. We can't afford to confront climate change because it will cost too much. 
It's costing us dearly now in property damage and lost lives and billions of dollars a year. Hurricanes, too, are being influenced by, by um, climate change, by the warming of the climate. We're not experiencing an increase in, turn, in hurricanes, but what we're witnessing is an increase in the, the strength or the severity of, of hurricanes. And, and here's a graph that shows you category. You'll, you'll see on the left, it's a percent of the total hurricanes. Uh, the year is listed on the bottom axis. And you'll see there's a decrease in category one, two, and three, while category four and five hurricanes are increasing. Again, evidence of climate change, evidence of global warming. Hurricane Katrina should have been a wake-up call for Americas, for, the Amer for Amer Americans. When Hurricane Katrina crossed the southern tip of uh, Florida, it was a Category 1. And as it moved into the Gulf of Mexico, all that stored energy, that heat energy in the Gulf, result, caused this hurricane to whip into a frenzy, and it hit the, it hit the Gulf Coast with, a, with a, um, a vengeance, causing an incredible amount of damage. It killed almost 1,900 people. It displaced a million people. A million people had to move out of town, find a place to live um, in order to, you know, in, in the aftermath of this hurricane. It destroyed, damage destroyed uh, 200,000 homes. And the, the damage alone to insured property was about $25 billion. That's $25,000 million. And the federal government spent at least $100 billion on the disaster. And it's estimated that the total impact was $150 billion. So again, don't tell me we can't afford to attack climate change, to confront climate change. We can't afford not to. Um, so what if the clim climate's changing? Maybe we can just adapt. Well, maybe we can adapt, but it's going to be a very rough ride, extremely rough ride. Take a look just at the western snowpack. Um, Projections are that we're going, to lose, uh, we're going to lose a significant amount of snowfall this year, notwithstanding a significant amount of snowfall in the, in the Rocky Mountains. Um, now, and along with that, we get a shortening of the ski season. You know, it's, as it gets warmer, the summertime temperatures begin much earlier. Spring comes much earlier. And the skiing industry currently needs, uh, has about a 140-day ski season, and it needs 100 of those days just to break even. So as you shorten that ski season, 5, 10, 15 days, you can see this is going to have a catastrophic effect on the economics of skiing. And some people project that by 2100, skiing in the Rockies could become a thing of the past. So maybe we can adapt to it, but the cost is going to be huge. We see it out west, a, a, a dramatic increase in forest fires. The west has been on fire for years. Historically, if you look back at it, if you look at the 16-year period from 1987 to 2003, you find that the fires in the West, largely because of climate change, have burned six and a half times as much area as they have between 1970 and 1986, thanks in large part to climate change. The U.S. government spends $1.7 billion on fire control, and the damage, annual damage often exceeds a billion dollars a year. So again, we need to get serious about climate change. It's an economic issue as much as it is an environmental issue. National Geographic called it the big thaw. Um, seas are on the rise. Ice is, on the, uh, is melting. 
Polar ice caps are especially vulnerable. There's been a significant reduction in the ice, cap, ice cover in the last 25 years. We're looking currently at a satellite, uh, satellite view of the North Pole, the Arctic ice cap, and you'll see that it's decreased in area about 10% per decade over the last 25 years. It's also thinning. Now, the, the thinning, the loss of polar ice isn't going to raise sea level, just like an ice cube melting in a glass of water isn't going to raise the water level. Um, but it does have a serious impact on wildlife, and it could have a dramatic impact on global climate as well. And the polar bear uh, already threatened with extinction is a, is a species that is suffering enormously by the loss of its habitat. And what is more, if you look at this graph, the blue line indicates what the computer models project for the melting of the, uh, the Arctic ice cap. And you see the red line is the actual melting, the observations. You can see it's melting away much more quickly than the computer models suggest. The problem with sea level has to do with ice that melts on land. That is land-based ice, glacial ice. This is Greenland, and you can see the extent of the, the melting in 1992, 2005, a major retreat of ice, of the ice cap, or the, the, the ice, the land-based ice in Greenland as a result of climate change. Now, one of the problems with this is it results in the deposition of a huge amount of fresh water into the ocean and uh, can have significant impacts on our climate. It could, paradoxically, even lead to uh, a new ice age. Well, it's one, one doesn't know for sure, but, but it could. The immediate effect is a rise in sea level, and we've already seen a sea level increase by about six inches in the last 50 years. So it, it could be a major problem. One of the problems with rising sea level is that storms, major, major storms that occur in the ocean will drive further inland, causing more damage. It'll also flood a lot of coastal land, including valuable ecological land. We're seeing that the, the all throughout most of the world, um, the land-based glaciers are melting much more quickly. You can see here how much more quickly they're melting. Look at the, the first two lines there, 50 and 60 year melts, and then the last five years, a massive melting. So we're, we're seeing a rapid retreat of glaciers. Now, for those who doubt whether global climate change is occurring, to me this is about the most secure, most promising data we actually have. Okay. Now, the... <laughs> Global warming clearly is occurring, and along with that, climate change, they're occurring. The evidence is, as I've just gone over, rising sea level, higher temperatures in the ocean and the atmosphere, persistent drought, increase in forest fires, a rise in the incidence of tornadoes and more violent hurricanes, melting glaciers. You know, the news is pretty grim, melting polar ice. You'd have to be an idiot to deny the evidence. But... The crucial question is, are global warming and global climate change caused by human activities? Okay? That's a critical question. Are, are these problems natural, as some would have us believe, or are they caused by human activities? Well, one piece of evidence, and I won't go through, there's, there are mountains of evidence suggesting that, indeed, climate change, global warming, are caused by human activities. Um, this is one bit of evidence. This graph shows global temperature in blue. And uh, right, under, right along with that is a, the increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide levels. And CO2 is a greenhouse gas. You probably all know that. I don't, that's no news to you today. And so there is definitely a correlation between the 
rising levels of CO2 and global temperature. But we all know in science that correlation need not be causation. You know, it need not be causation. That graph doesn't necessarily mean they're causally related. Um, but it doesn't take, as one of my friends say, a rocket surgeon to see the connection. Okay? To me, rising carbon dioxide is to global warming what excess caloric intake is to body weight. Now, if you consume 100 calories a day more than you need, than you burn, that's the difference between blue cheese dressing and Italian dressing, or that's mo maybe a half a cookie a day more than, you, more than you need, you will gain weight, about 10 pounds a year. Um, the same thing with carbon, you know, so it's a pretty, it's a pretty, that's a Whopper hamburger, isn't it? Talk about a Whopper. Same thing with climate change. If you dump 8 billion tons of a known greenhouse gas into the atmosphere, what do you expect is going to happen? You know? It doesn't take a lot of science to, I mean, to, to, to figure out what's going to happen. But the big question is, is it caused by natural factors? This is an extraordinary study that was uh, published a couple years ago. It's very complex, and I'll try to simplify it. But it, it was a study produced by world's atmospheric scientists, and they examined what we call radiative forcing components. These are things that cause the Earth to warm up or to cool down. And the top portion, you can see, the top portion of this, all of these are anthropogenic. These are things that humans have uh, these are human influences, and you can see there are a number of, of things that we do. Uh, the CO2 we release into the atmosphere, methane, nitrous oxide. There are a number of things that we do, a number of, of products of human activity that are causing the atmosphere to warm, causing radiative forcing. They're warming the Earth's surface, and we measure it in watts per square meter. There are some things, there, there are some um, factors that are, that human factors that are actually cooling the climate. But when you add the two together, take all that are warming the climate, subtract out the one, the, 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 the factors that are cooling the climate, human influence factors, this is the gain. We're gaining almost a watt and a half per square meter. Um, that's the radiative forcing in an annual basis um, caused by all these factors. Now, scientists have looked very, very carefully at natural factors as well. And you can see right here is the sum total, the best estimate of natural global uh, climate change, the natural radiative forcing. So when people say to me, um, you know, natural factors could be, uh, could be influencing climate as well, and I say, absolutely. You're absolutely right. There are natural factors that affect our climate. To the best of our knowledge, they're minuscule, they're, they're insignificant, they're trivial compared to the human factors. So yes, there is a tiny component to climate change caused by natural factors, but the vast majority is a result of human activities, pumping CO2 into the atmosphere, methane, deforestation. Okay. So the truth requires a little digging, and one has to be very careful about where we get our truth. If you're real curious about the, um, about the science behind climate change, and you want to examine some of the criticism from, from, our, from the critics. This is a wonderful website, a skepticalscience.com. It's a physicist has put it together, takes every single counterclaim from the, skept, the global climate uh, skeptics, and it answers it with good science. It explains what's really going on. So I really recommend that you take a look at that if you want to dig deeply. So we've got exponential growth of just about everything. We've got um, 
We've got uh, a climate that's, uh, you know, with wacky weather that's being driven out of control, costing us billions of dollars a year and, and literally thousands, tens of thousands of lives a year, but that's not all. I'm going to tell you just a little bit more. Um, we also have a bit of a problem with oil, um, a very quiet crisis with oil. Bear in mind, first of all, that oil represents 41% of America's national energy consumption, 41%. Natural gas, 23%. So collectively, these two fuels, which you're going to learn about shortly, are in danger. We're running out of cheap oil and natural gas. These two fuels constitute six, almost two-thirds of our energy consumption. They're the lifeblood of American economy. Little known to many people, U.S. oil production actually peaked in 1971. And since then, U.S. oil production has plummeted, has, con has continued to fall every year since 1971. We've never produced more oil than we did in 1971. And what's interesting is if you look at what, we, what uh, geologists call the ultimate production or ultimate extraction, we estimate that there's about 225 to 250 billion barrels of oil. Um, uh, that in, when, we're all, when the age of oil in the United States is over, when we're pretty much done uh, extracting oil from the Earth's crust, we will have consumed somewhere between 225 and 250 billion barrels. To date, we've consumed two three-quarters of that, maybe 80% of our domestic oil. So we have about 60 bar billion barrels worth of oil left within our control, within our, our national borders. Um, so are we running out of oil? Absolutely, in the United States. And what is more, Americans consume 7 billion barrels of oil per year. This is crude oil. Um, <clears throat> I heard someone on the radio today say, with the price of, of gas, we shouldn't be calling it crude oil anymore. We should be calling it obscene oil. Um, but in any event, uh, the U.S. supplies... If we, were to if we could only depend on domestic oil, if that's all we had, if we didn't have imports, we'd only have about eight to nine years of consumption. If we just gathered all our oil domestically, so we're really on the very edge of running out of oil here in the United States. So yes, we are running out of oil, but fortunately we have foreign oil to supply our needs. Um, we import about 60% of our oil from foreign uh, sources, and many countries, of course, that aren't too fond of us. So the question is now, do we have enough oil globally to continue on our economic path? And if you look globally, the ultimate production for global oil is somewhere between 1,800 and 2,200 um, billion barrels. Let's just say, for ease of memory, about 2,000 billion barrels. When the era of oil, the age of oil is over, we will have consumed somewhere around 2,000 billion barrels of oil. Currently, we've consumed half of that. About half of that oil is gone. So the good news is we're only half empty. It's sort of like on a trip and the gas tank hits the 50% mark. No sweat yet. We've got plenty of time. But, so it appears that we've got plenty of oil, but appearances can be extremely deceiving. Even though we have a lot of oil, we're rapidly running out of what we've got left. Um, and don't forget, we've got some countries, massive countries, with populations well over a billion each, uh, two-thirds of the world, or uh, a third of the world's population in two countries that are rapidly industrializing um, and demanding oil as well. So don't forget that. Now, the bottom line is oil is going to be around for a while. But the important thing is not when you run out of oil, but when global oil production peaks, when it reaches its peak. 
Most experts predict that the peak will occur between 2007 and 2008. Based on our consumption, known oil supplies, and discoveries we can expect, somewhere between 2007 and 2018. Now you say, wait a minute, this is 2011. Don't we know yet? No, we don't, because it's not going to be one of these peaks that it goes straight up and then starts going down. It's more likely going to be a plateau. And we'll ride along the plateau for a while and then come down. And it won't be until we're a few years out that we can look back and go, guess what? Oil production has peaked. Even ExxonMobil quietly uh, announced while I was teaching a class here at CC that they predicted oil, global oil will peak somewhere. Uh, in 2005, they announced that it will peak sometime in the next five years. When will it peak? Actually, when will it peak? Actually, a lot of countries have already peaked, unbeknownst to many people. U.S. oil production peaked in 71. Iran, 73. Russian oil peaked in 1988. The huge Russian oil fields peaked in 98. Indonesian oil, 94. The United Kingdom, 1999. Uh, Norway, 2001. And Mexico peaked in 2004. Mexico used to pump out 37 million barrels of oil a year. They're down to 30 million now. And bear in mind, the oil companies aren't sitting on their haunches um, not looking for oil. They're drilling with incredible intensity and not finding huge deposits of oil. Um, consider these facts. Globally, we consume 22 billion barrels of oil a year, and yet we discover only about 4 billion barrels a year. Okay? Five times more. Um, how do we meet these? Well, we meet them by tapping into previous discoveries. This, map, this graph shows in red shows the past discoveries. And you'll notice we had some wonderful years in the 30s and, four, and, and 40s and 50s and 60s, massive discoveries of oil. But if you look at the period after that, you can see we're discovering less and less and less oil all the time. This should be a red flag for a developing country that depends on oil. This should be a huge red flag for a country like ours that gets 41% of its energy from oil. The black line is our consumption. This is the oil embargoes in the 70s. But you see we continue. We consume 22 billion barrels a year, and yet we only discover a 4 billion. So we're living off this oil right now. We're living off previous discoveries. What's interesting is the oil companies haven't made a major discovery since the 1960s. Oh, sure, you'll hear the news about a big oil field, but most of them are really quite minuscule compared, or all of them are quite minuscule to the oil we find today. So we haven't made a major oil discovery since the 1960s, okay? Um, so what matters in all of this is the peak. When peak production is going to mark a historical discontinuity when that growth that we're so used to, the prosperity that we're so used to, turns to decline. Um, and when oil production peaks, many things are going to happen. Um, basically, it's a period when what, what it means when we say it peaks is that supply can no longer keep up with demand. Uh, certainly, prices will rise, and I su submit that's partly what's going on right now. We've had a couple incidences of this in the last 10 years where prices were going out of control. Unfortunately, we had a worldwide recession to drive down demand. Now that the economy is improving again, oil consumption is going up, and so along with it is the price. So um, it's certainly going to stimulate the search for more oils and more oil and alternatives. But barring any new finds, any new major finds, what many people predict is periods of inflation followed by recession over and over again, rocking our economy 
Um, so expect this in the future. It's coming. It's here already right now. Okay? Expect this and get ready for the ride of your lifetime, and it's not going to be pleasant. But wait, there's more. Um, natural gas production peaked in the early 1970s, and it's remained constant for the last 40 years. And here's an actual graph of U.S. natural gas production. You can see it peaked in 1973 and then plummeted, and thanks to some very, very intensive efforts, it's increased a bit, but it's really pretty much plateaued for the last 40 years. And again, it's not because the uh, energy companies are sitting back on their haunches um, not trying. We're drilling more and more natural gas wells a year and not able to keep production from, from we're not able to increase production. What we're finding, for example, in Texas is they drill 5,500 new natural gas wells per year. And within two years, those new wells are 50% depleted. Within four years, they're 75% depleted. Same thing in Canada, which is a major supplier of natural gas to the states. 6,500 new gas wells a year in Western, in Western Canada. Again, the same thing. They keep hitting small pockets of natural gas. Within two years, they're 50% gone. Within four years, they're 75% gone. So we have a serious problem with natural gas. Can we import more? Well, currently we import about 15% of our natural gas from Canada. But Canada's running out too. And by the way, that 15% that we import represents half of all of Canada's production. Okay? So we take, we buy, currently 50% of the natural gas that Canada produces. But what about importation? We can also bring it in, in these large ships, these large ships as tankers is compressed natural gas. But we only bring in about 2%. And currently, we're really not geared up to accept many mo much more. We only have a half a dozen ports in the United States that are geared up, that are designed to accept natural gas. So I don't think we can count on imports right now. Uh, in addition, even if we could, we could ship more in. Uh, many experts in natural gas uh, estimate that the global production of natural gas is going to peak somewhere between 2015 and 2025. So I'll note natural gas is really the best of all fossil fuels. We don't have a lot of natural gas left either. So just keep in mind that oil and natural gas collectively represent 64% of our nation's energy. So we're talking the lifeblood of society. All right, what do we do? What do we do? One of the most important things is energy efficiency. We waste probably half to three quarters of the energy we consume in this country. Um, mounting a nationwide conservation effort, efficiency effort, beginning in our communities, our colleges, <clears throat> our homes, our departments, would have a huge impact. I mean, there's so much waste. And then the other part of the strategy is to develop a new, new energy resources, especially renewable energy resources. And we have vast supplies of those to develop. Unfortunately, we spend most of our time on the sexy part, which is the, the new technologies, windmills, wind, wind turbines, uh, you know, solar collectors and all that. And we pay very little attention to what to efficiency and conservation, which are the cheapest, the, the quickest the most environmentally sustainable ways to free up energy supplies. So our focus is always on the sexy thing, and I understand that because renewable energy is really quite exciting. But So why do we refuse to let go? In, in light of this evidence, the evidence that's been around for a long time, why do we refuse to let go? 
as I began to ponder this, I realized that's a complex set of reasons. And I'm going to touch on these, on many of them today. We could spend an entire semester talking about this, but um, there are psychological factors and, and social factors, uh, economic, uh, even political, and some educational factors that play into this. I don't think, for example, educators have done a good job or the educational system has done a good job about um, promoting ecological literacy amongst the American population. So why do we let go? Well, one, why do we refuse to let go? Why are we that monkey trap? Well, one of it's difficult to grasp that, that humans could really change the climate, that human society could really have such a huge impact. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation and outright lies out there, uh, ignorance of the issue, uh, lack of scientific literacy, the list goes on, a lack of ecological literacy, um, inadequacy in our education, and of course there's the party attitude. I'd rather party than think about the real things, and I'd or I'd rather go shopping. Uh, consumerism has become a national uh, pastime or obsession. I'm going to talk about each of these and hopefully have a little fun while we do it. There's more too. The media is partly to blame for all this, the shallow reporting that occurs in the media. Media is also crisis driven. Um, there's sensationalism in the media. And I'm going to, something that's going to seem strange right now is the, uh, the media's obsession with an appearance on balance. Uh, now that may sound odd coming from someone like myself, but I'll talk to you about that later. And there's a short-sightedness that we all suffer from. Um, and of course there's politics and money. So the list goes on and on and on. There's even in my mind an anti-environmental backlash. And we'll talk about that. And then of course there's this plethora of crises and, and we are overwhelmed by tragedy and, and crisis. Now, I wrote a paper years ago on the root causes of the environmental crisis. I don't expect you to read this. I don't expect this to be read, but this was my, this is the environmental crisis here, and these are all the interlocking kinds of causes, all the things that contribute to that, that contribute to the kind of society we have and the environmental crisis. So one is it's, it's a really complex equation. There's a lot going on. You know, avoid the simplic, simplistic, it's the corporation's kind of mentality. You know, we can't blame the, the, the problem on any single entity. It, it's all, just about everything um, in human society. It is also difficult for a lot of people to grasp that human beings, human society, could really change the climate. You know, I've heard this over and over again. I just can't believe that we could possibly be uh, changing the climate of a planet. Um, this is not modern thinking. Ice age is ending. Must be our fault. Um, you know, this is not something that we find very easy to accept, that we have a major impact. And then, of course, there's a ton of misinformation and lies and liars. Uh, Michael Mann um, and many other people um, trying to promote the idea that this uh, global warming is a worldwide hoax, that scientists have all got together and decided we needed more funding so we were going to create this worldwide hoax called climate change and we get all this research to study climate change. I want to tell you a little secret about American politics today. And that is politics is perception. You know, politics is perception. And what I mean by that is our policy is based on our perceptions, what we perceive to be true. Not necessarily what is true, but what we are told is true. For example, like Fox News, is the 21st century Paul Revere. Okay, and that it provides somehow a balanced coverage. 
Here's another dirty little secret about American politics, is that lies and misinformation repeated enough times somehow translates into truth. If you hear it enough times, sooner or later you start believing it. And we see this by the, you know, the hoaxers who you know, criticize uh, Al Gore and who continually repeat over and over and over again that global warming is a myth, it's a hoax. And sooner or later, people start to believe it. And we're even diverted, uh, our attention is even diverted by such thought stoppers as, well, global warming really, what the agenda here is we're trying to create global governance. Because truly, global warming, global climate change is going to require an international effort, right? So what we're accused of is trying to create global governance, and of course we can't have that. Now here's another one, global warming's a myth. Behold the real reason for water, why water levels are rising. So again, if you repeat it enough time, people will believe it. And then there's an extraordinary amount of ignorance. Um, people say, well, we can't predict the weather, how can we predict the climate? Well, we had a really cold winter, where is that global warming stuff, you know? Where, so there's a huge amount of ignorance. A lot of people don't get the difference between weather and climate. Climate is what you expect. It's the average weather conditions. Weather is what you get, you know, and it's variable. Just because it snowed like crazy in Colorado this year doesn't mean it snowed like crazy anywhere else or that, you know, it may be that China suffered extraordinary heat waves. So it's the climate we're changing, the global climate, and we do have regional variations. So we have some weirdness in weather, but the climate is clearly under assault. At, some time, at, at times, there's utter stupidity, the things that we hear coming out of people's minds. And, and of course, thinking, even though we are the homo sapiens, the self-proclaimed thinking man, thinking is not always one of our strong suits. Um, and it was Kierkegaard, I believe, who said, against stupidity, even the gods struggle in vain. So that is another barrier. That keeps us from moving forward and, and making the kind of progress we need. Uh, again, another problem, another issue is this lack of scientific and, and ecological literacy. You know, a lot of people out there, um, not well trained in science and ecology, somehow get the idea that environmental protection is about protecting pretty places for bird watchers and backpackers, and that's all we care about. When in, when in fact, the environment is the source of all of our resources, Every resource, the chair you're sitting on, the breakfast food, the, the air you're breathing, the, the, you know, the, your, everything in your life, the clothing you wear, comes from our environment. It's the source of all of our resource, and in fact, it's the source of our wealth. In addition, it's the sink for all our waste. Just understanding how fundamentally important the environment is to us, I think would help a lot of people change their minds. Ecosystems, I like to think of ecosystems as the biological infrastructure of modern society or the infra infrastructure of society. You know, in high school we learn all about infrastructure. We learn about ports and, and airports and highways and, and school buildings and, uh, you know, all kinds of factories. That, that's the infrastructure and we focus most of our attention on that. But this is not possible without the Earth and its ecosystems. Nothing over here in human society is, po is possible without the biological infrastructure. Now imagine if every politician in the United States understood that. Every mayor, every governor, every congresswoman, every congressman, every business owner understood that there's this vital link between the environment 
and our economic prosperity, indeed our lives, imagine what a different world we'd have, how differently it would be designed. You know, think of how differently it would be designed. The earth and, the ecos and its ecosystems make our lives possible. Why don't we learn that in first grade? Why don't we learn that in second grade? Um, they provide the resources that fuel our economy. They provide, and environmental protection is really then about protecting our livelihoods. It's about protecting our food, our sources of food, and the conditions that are vital for food production. It's about protecting recreational opportunities, uh, which have an economic component as well. They provide us places to exercise, to simply unwind or reconnect. And it's about protecting beauty, and beauty in and of itself has a value, but it has an economic value as well. So um, environmental protection really is about protecting our economy, our prosperity, and our future. And I don't think we as environmental advocates have done a very good job of getting this message out. I'm going to talk some more about that. So ecological literacy, um, planet care is the ultimate form of self-care. Now, imagine the world we would live in if everybody on the planet understood that. It's about ensuring a good future for us and all the species that share this planet with us. And so far from being an impediment to human progress, environmental protection is a precondition for our long-term success. It's a precondition for our long-term success. And then, of course, there's the, we, have, we live today in a society of extraordinary wealth. I mean, we have uh, wealth beyond imagination in this, in this country. Even some, of the, some who aren't in the middle class have extraordinary wealth compared to people in third world countries. And as a result, we've, gained, we've, gained, we've adopted an attitude that it's a party. We're here for the party, so we'd rather party. What a wonderful world we live in. Go in a grocery store in Mexico, uh, in a rural village in Mexico, compare it to one of ours. We live in this world we're regaled with an enormous uh, variety of, of foods and, and shiny objects and clothes. Um, and then occasionally we face a crisis. And Americans get smart. We get smart. We make changes. We adapt. We become more energy efficient. But as soon as things get better, we kind of abandon our conviction and go back to our own ways. E.E. E. Cummings, the Harvard poet, one of my favorites, once said, said it really best. He said, humanity, I love you. When times are flush, you pawn your intelligence to buy a drink. You know? So as soon as things get better, we go back to our old ways. If we had followed the, 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 the direction of Jimmy Carter back in the 80s, we wouldn't have the, environmental, the energy crisis we have today. So when times are flush, we pawn our intelligence to buy a drink. And there we are. Let's have a party. Okay? Now, and then, of course, part of our wealth is that we've become a society of consumers. Uh, I'd rather go shopping. Shop till you drop, or he or, she, he or she who dies with the most toys wins. And part of that is the advertisements that we're bombarded with on television and so everywhere else we look. Um, even urinals and men's restrooms. Uh, we can't escape advertising. And advertisers fan those consumer fires. That's their job. That's their job. And they have the perfect instrument for that called the television set, the TV. It's become the main artery to our hearts and our, and our minds of consumers. It's become, you know, we, and, and, and over time, 
we've become programmed for entitlement. Whatever is new, we've got to have it. There's just no question. Something new on the market, a new version of a computer or a cell phone, we've got to have it. We're programmed for entitlement and also somehow conditioned for discomfort. Whatever we have, it's not enough. And that's partly what the advertisers play on, and that's partly what fuels, that fuels these consumer fires. So we make some foolish decisions. Um, now, I turn my attention next to the media. The media, I think, contributes to our ignorance. They've convinced us that in a minute and a half report on television is an in-depth study or an in-depth presentation of an issue. And of course, the media is, is, uh, uh, fan, is, uh, is obsessed with crisis and sensationalism. In fact, TV news is driven by crisis. They just, they, you know, you can see them in the newsroom as soon as there's a new tsunami or an earthquake. It's just, they're ecstatic, paroxysms of delight, you know, knowing that we have a new crisis to focus on. Um, it's catastrophe driven. And bad news is good news for the media. You know, it doesn't matter what it is, it's good news. But unfortunately, the slowly unfolding crises that really matter don't command a whole lot of attention in this environment rising sea level, this flooding islands throughout the world, they don't command a lot of attention. Now, Henry Kissinger, Secretary of, of State under, under Richard Nixon, said that in American politics, the urgent displaces the important. And the same things happen in modern world. Sensationalism trumps or displaces the important. We're, we're enamored by, you know, reports on a tsunami, but we don't get much, we don't pay much attention to the slow unfolding crisis. There's a cricket in here, uh, and it's my Linda, too. So in the modern world, sensationalism trumps or, and displaces the important. In the, the, the comings and goings, the shenanigans of Charlie Sheen and Lindsay Lohan get more media attention than global climate change or acid rain or all those pressing problems. Now, the media really strives for balance. They really strive for balance, but in doing so, they make a colossal mistake. They like to pit one expert against another, one scientist against another. But what they do is they fail to quantify the so-called balance. They may bring someone like James Hansen on, who arguably knows more about climate change than any scientist in the entire world. And then they'll bring some schmuck on who has a very shallow understanding of climate change. And the media presents this as a balanced view. Here we have James Hansen saying it's caused by humans, and here's another guy saying mm, it's a myth. What they fail to do is tell you that this balance is nowhere near balance. There are 1,600 atmospheric scientists against two critics. And I think that's a fundamental flaw of the media. Um, and a lot of these people are financed by the oil companies. And it's not balanced at all. It's certainly not balanced. And of course, there's a need for controversy and this, this need for controversy, for sensationalism, and the appearance of balance uh, spawns, oh, no, I did it. I did it. Excuse me. Um, I hit the wrong button. Bear with me for just a second. I knew that would happen. Give you a preview of what's coming here <laughs> in reverse. All right. So this, the need for controversy, for sensationalism, and the appearance of balance spawns a lot of problems. We become distracted by, 
uh, controversy. We become distracted. In the climate change argument, we become distracted by the argument and forget that climate change policy actually is a rattling good uh, policy for creating a sustainable future. Um, and, you know, we don't see the big picture. Humans aren't, and I hate to be so critical today, uh, we aren't really big picture thinkers. So we get something like this. What if it's a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? Okay? Energy independence, you know, peace in the Middle East. Uh, we preserve the rainforest and sustainability and livable cities and clean water. Um, not a bad trade-off. Now, another factor that has a huge amount to do with why we continue to hang on is politics, big business, and greed. This, this graphic represents the contributions to senators who voted against the energy bill, the progressive energy bill. 195,000 bucks a piece from the oil companies. Those who voted against it, a mere $67,000. That tells it all. Big business has an ax to grind. And I tr honestly have to be understanding oil companies have billions, if not trillions upon trillions of dollars invested in oil infrastructure. And it's, it would be hard for any of us to let go of that, to see something, you know, to accept that there's something that could threaten our, our livelihood. Um, <clears throat> big business has also, though, mounted a campaign to try to convince you that global climate change is not real. Uh, ExxonMobil has spent millions of dollars trying to convince you that global warming is not real. The oil companies currently have a couple television ads running. One of them is to tells you that there's all kinds of oil and natural gas available to us and we don't really need to worry. What they fail to tell you is that most of that natural gas, there's very little oil, but most of that natural gas, and there's a huge amount, buried deep in the Burgess Shale you know, back east. And, it's, and most geologists that I've talked to said it's, it will be economically unviable to, to tap into that. So they, they don't tell you the entire truth. And the other ad which just started appearing is one telling you that if you have an IRA or a 401k or whatever, a retirement account of some kind, you probably own an oil company. And ergo, let's be gentle on the oil companies who want to drill offshore. Let's make policy that's good to us. So the oil companies have a major, they influence politics and now they're trying to influence the human, the general population by these slick commercials. So they're brainwashing the American public an extremely insidious and dangerous force. Now ExxonMobil headquarters, Exxon spends millions of dollars promising clean, you know, uh, promoting their clean green image. You've probably seen the TV ads. And yet very little of that money actually goes in investments in clean energy technologies. So um, ideally, or ultimately, we have the best government that money can buy. You know, there's just no question. We have the best money that government can buy. Part of the problem, too, I think there's an anti-environmental uh, backlash. All right? Um, I think there's a knee-jerk reaction in this country to, and many people, to anything that sounds environmental. If it sounds environmental, like renewable energy, we just don't want it. It's interesting here in Colorado, um, when, what was it, Proposition 37 a few years ago, which, which increased the amount of renewable energy we're going to generate from, from uh, you know, gener the renewable energy we're going to generate, the amount of electricity we're going to get from renewables. The main fact, the main 
uh, portion of our population that voted against it was the rural communities, were the rural communities. And they serve to benefit the most because that's where all these big wind farms are going. And they're making a fortune in tax revenues as a result of the thing that they voted against because it sounded, you know, liberal and it sounded, you know, environmental. We don't, we don't want to do that. Now, through our teachings, and I take some blame for this as well, through our writings and our activism, we've promoted a kind of a misconception of environmental protection. And one of those misconceptions is that we, you know, environmental protection is about protecting habitats of birds and butterflies, species that most people will never see in their lifetimes. Um, protecting, you know, it's all about protecting pretty places for nature lovers and bird watchers, that elite group of the American public. It has nothing to do with, with ordinary people or the minorities and workers. And I think we've done a disservice in, in how we've promoted environmental protection, and we need to clean up our act. Um, the environmental movement, environment and environmental protection, the environmental movement and environmental protection um, are irrelevant to the, most, the lives of most people, or so we've let people believe. We've, we've led people to believe that this has nothing to do with their lives. Today, as a result, environmentalism is seen as just another special interest group, and you get put in that category and you're in trouble. Um, we care more about frogs and penguins and trees than we do about people. Um, environmental protection is viewed as a luxury as a result. Well, we really don't need that stuff. We can get a buy without that stuff. This is a famous cartoon, you know, down here it says, whoops, it says, um, one day with the money made by industry, we'll be able to clean up the environment. It's kind of a common attitude. We need economics. Economics trumps environment. Not that they're, that they're closely tied or they're dependent on each other, but that they're separate entities. Now, I think one of the problems with the environmental movement is we, we, we've, we've had trouble articulating vision. We've had trouble articulating values and, and showing the, the, how vision and values and policy um, can be merged to create a better, a better world. The three-part strategy, and this comes from an article called The Death of Environmentalism, a three-part strategy a framework for environmental policy hasn't really changed in 40 years. We do the same thing over and over again. We first define a problem as environmental, then we craft a nice technical remedy, and then we sell the technical proposal to the legislatures through just a variety of tactics. Now, the problem with this, the arrogance these writers note, is that environmentalists ask, environmentalists ask not what we can do for non-environmental constituencies, but what they can do for us. So we leave them out of the picture. As a result, you see this uh, public support for action on global warming is wide, but it's very shallow. The first time we get an economic perturbation, a little downfall in the economy, it's the hell with all those environmental regulations. So Americans, you know, 95% of us, whatever, proclaim to be environmentalists, but it's an extremely shallow commitment because we simply don't get the connection between the environment and our lives. And we're never going to be able to muster that strength that it takes to deal with this, the problems like global warming as long as we're seen as a special interest group. We're never going to be able to do that. Now, of course, we're, we're short-sighted. By human nature, we're short-sighted. And one of the paradoxes of the human condition, this is uh, something that, that um, I've been talking about for a long time, is, one of the, is that 
by the grace of the frontal lobe go we. The frontal lobe is that part of the brain that allows us to create ideas, a center for ideation. It's also the place where we plan and think about the future. That's where that all occurs. It's one thing that separates us from all the other species, even the monkeys, is we have this amazing ability to think and to look into the future. But for most of us, we don't do very much. We don't do much with that. For, for a lot of people, the long-term future is like, hey, what's for dinner? You know, we don't do a really good job. Um, we don't do the future very well here in America. It's not something we like to do about. Another, uh, another paradox that, that I've uh, coined is this paradox of what I call inconsequence. And here's how it goes. Is a lot of us refuse to take action. Oh, I'm not going to recycle. I'm not going to drive the speed limit. You know, I'm not going to put renewable energy on my house. Uh, you know, I'll turn the lights off. Because we view individual actions as inconsequential. Why should I recycle? What difference is it going to make? I'm just one of 350 million Americans, 6.5 billion world people. Why bother? Why should I even bother? Okay, so what difference does it make? Now, what's interesting about that logic is it paradoxically keeps us, or keeps us from taking action, but it's the same logic that creates the problems. It's millions of people doing whatever they please, feeling they're inconsequential, that spawns environmental crisis. So the, the logic that prevents us, the logic that creates the problem, also keeps us from solving it. So it's a, what I call this paradox of inconsequence. All right, so there's more, and we're almost done. Another thing that we've got to consider, one reason why we are almost frozen in place, is there's just no shortage of crises anymore. Um, you know, oil, oil rigs on fire, tsunamis, starvations, civil war, um, poverty, you know, all nuclear power plants like this one in Japan um, melting down. There's just no shortage of crises. I think I'd rather party, you know? Who, who wouldn't want rather party or watch a football game for the afternoon? So we're stuck in the monkey trap because of these factors and a whole bunch of others. We're grasping to that rice or that banana, refusing to let go. Um, but I think there's something very interesting happening here. I think despite all these failings, I think we're at the beginning of a, of a, a revolution, a sustainable revolution. You know, we've gone through the agricultural revolution, which has been remarkable, and the industrial revolution. Um, I think maybe even a computer revolution. And now we're in the midst of the beginning of a sustainable revolution. And I think we look back in history 100 years from now, if we haven't, if we haven't annihilated ourselves, we look back at 100 years from now, the history books are going to say this was the start of a sustainable revolution. In the 80s and 90s and 2000s, um, the world began to move in a sustainable fashion. And there's evidence everywhere. One is the rise of wind energy, wind and solar energy. You can see a dramatic increase in wind energy. Um, that's just wind energy. Listen to this. China has become the single largest driver of global wind. In 2010, every other wind turbine added to the planet was installed in China. Okay? Huge change going on here. Listen to this, too. Um, the Global Wind Energy Council said the installed power capacity from wind turbines around the world will probably rival the potential generation of electricity from nuclear power plants within the next four years. It's growing that fast. So that is a, that's just one sign to me 
of a dramatic change that is occurring. Colorado has a renewable energy portfolio standard. We've committed to get 20% of our electricity by 2020 from wind. Uh, California, 33%. No, Colorado's boosted it to 30, haven't they? Um, Germany has made a commitment, 100% renewable energy. Great Britain, 60 to 60% renewable energy. We are in the midst of a sustainable revolution. And a lot of it's occurring here in the Southwest. My students took a look at all the wind and solar developments in the Southwest and found we were blown away by the number of facilities that already exist and the, the hundreds and hundreds of facilities that are underway, that are in production or in the planning stage. So my friends, we are in an extraordinarily exciting times. We're creating a sustainable society. What is sustainable development? Well, many of you know this, but it's simply development that meets the needs of the present generation, how we go about meeting our needs without, compromise, without compromising the ability of future generations to meet theirs. Currently, uh, well, I heard Al Gore speak years ago in Kentucky. In his speech, he said, you know, the term sustainable development implies that there's something called unsustainable development. And that's clearly what we're doing now. We're robbing Peter to pay Paul. We're living high off the hog in our luxurious life size, our lifestyles, our massive uh, consumption of resources, basically foreclosing on future generations. The whole idea here, a new vision for the environmental community, is sustainability. It, we say that it satisfies the triple bottom line. It's good for people, it's good for the planet, and it's good for the economy. And that's a departure from conventional environmental thinking, which has said, it's good for the environment, let's go for it. We are looking for solutions like renewable energy that make sense from all three perspectives. And that's the vision that we need to articulate. Abraham Lincoln said it, as times are new, so we must act, think and act anew. It's really time to think and act anew. Even Walmart's going green. Not only green, they're starting to push for sustainability. Now, I know Walmart's not the hero of a lot of people in here, but you've got to hand it to them. These guys are making a major effort to green up their act even more and to push for sustainability. What I hope to leave you with today is this notion that, that we don't lack the, the ideas or the technology or even the money to make this transition to sustainability. But each day we, we wait makes it more difficult to achieve a smooth transition. So it's important as, you know, to exercise our frontal lobes and move into the future. Okay? And here are some of the technologies I think you're going to see a lot more of as time goes by. This is a solar, this is a, um, solar hot air collector. It's mounted on the south sides of homes. And as natural gas declines, I think we're going to see more and more people heating their homes with this simple device. What it is is a collector that mounts on the south side of your home. It pulls inside air out, heats it with solar energy, and then dumps it back into the house. Very simple device like this. I'm particularly fond of this one because it has a little solar module, a PV module, that runs the fan. So it's a self-contained unit that will heat a room. We'll see a lot of ground source heat pumps. These are heat pumps that use electricity but they suck heat out of the earth. They, they withdraw heat from the earth and heat our homes. And what's cool about a, a, a heat pump like this is that you, in, re, in the winter, you can, in the summer, you can run them in reverse. You can suck heat out of your house and dump it into the ground. So we'll see a lot more of that. And simple things like this solar attic fan, which vents our attics. 
Most addicts get to 140, 150 degrees on a hot summer day, and a lot of that heat enters our homes through the ceilings. In fact, 40% of our daily uh, heat gain in the summer comes through our ceilings because of overheated attics. These solar attic fans, simple self-contained device, will purge that hot air and keep the attic cool, thus lowering our air conditioning bills, our use of energy. There are a lot of very simple solutions too. Um, you know, uh, very, very simple things that we can use to save energy, uh, compact fluorescent light bulbs, um, water heater blankets, all kinds of things that we can do. Another promising device is the on-demand or tankless water heater uses at least 20% energy than a traditional water heater. Uh, solar hot water heaters will help us heat water in the future using solar energy. Extremely affordable technology. And we've got some really interesting designs in this, in this area. These are evacuated tube solar collectors that even work on cloudy days. So solar pool heating systems, very economical. They compete extremely well with conventional pool heating systems. Um, new, new types of lighting, extraordinarily efficient lighting that use a fraction of the light of a standard light bulb. Energy star uh, appliances and, and electronics. Uh, solar electric uh, modules called thin film man, uh, laminate that, that are, can be applied directly to a metal roof. Um, here's an interesting one. Here's a solar hot water collector for correct, collect, uh, correct excuse me, for generating hot water and has a little solar module, electric module, that runs the motors. We can power entire homes with solar electricity. We'll see a lot more of these large solar farms. And we've got some amazing technologies, new, new super energy efficient hybrid cars and electric cars. I guarantee that most of the students in this room will be driving an electric car during their lifetime. And don't think golf cart when you think electric car. This Tesla goes zero to 60. That should be zero to 60, not six. This is sort of, sort of shoots my point, doesn't it? Zero to 60 in under four seconds. So we don't seem to lack the technology or ideas, but we seem to lack both the personal and the political will to move forward. Now, remember, too, there's plenty of renewable energy. Dick Cheney used to annoy the daylights out of me. Um, I'm giving the signal. I'm almost done, guys. Um, we're, you know, Dick Cheney used to always say, you know, these are unproven technologies. There's not enough renewable energy. America is loaded with renewable energy. The Midwest is the Saudi. This is a wind chart. These dark areas show the Midwest is the Saudi Arabia of wind. There's enough wind energy in North and South Dakota to power all our electrical demands. Um, solar energy the same. Many parts of our country are blessed with an abundance of solar energy. And what's interesting, the, there's so much solar energy, only, only about one half of a billionth of the energy from the sun actually strikes the earth. And if we could capture all of that energy that struck the earth in a 40-minute period, it would be equal to all the energy we consume in an entire year. Not just electrical, all the energy. So don't let anybody ever tell you that we don't have enough renewable energy. And what's interesting in the states and other countries, we have an interesting distribution. We have a lot of solar energy, all this is blue is wind energy, and a lot of biomass energy. And, and, and I think the future of America is going to be solar and wind and biomass plants that generate electricity and transport it across the country. So if the sun's not shining here, we get wind energy from over here. If the wind's not blowing, we get solar energy from here. So I, I think that's the future for America. So can the human race survive the human race? Absolutely. Is there reason for hope? Absolutely, despite all these problems, 
we have a, a first grade teacher, a second grade teacher, passed out to her students these famous quotes. The first half, and asked them, and this is just to show you how ingenious our children are, better safe than sorry, and she asked the kids to fill in the quote. Punch a fifth grader. A miss as good as a hit. A mister, okay? You can't teach an old dog new tricks, new math. You can't teach some kids that either. The pen is mightier than the, the sword. Ah, someone's getting it. Pigs. <laughs> there are little hints here, okay? Uh, an idle mind is, it's the devil's playground, the best way to relax. <laughs> now here's one. Ben Frank would, would like this. A penny saved is, a penny earned, hey, get with it, not much. <laughs> and here's one. Children should be seen and not heard, spanked or grounded. <laughs> Finally, here's a future technologist. If you don't succeed, try, try again, get new batteries. So our kids are pretty ingenious. And here's my favorite of all. Someone listening into mom's and dad's bedroom, better late than pregnant. All right. So there's a, the secret is we just need to let go. We just need to let go. And that begins with all of us. We need to develop ecological and environmental literacy and, and scientific literacy. But we need to let go and embrace this new and exciting era and never ever should we forget that good planets are hard to come by. Thank you very much.